Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 279. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Back in early January of this year, I emailed Stephen Utley, an author from Austin, Texas, and one of my personal favorites, if he'd be interested in selling us rights to produce his creepy, small-town, archaeologic story, The Country Doctor, on the Drabblecast. Steve wrote back, Norm, if I may, yes, I would be delighted. Yours, spelled Y-E-R-S, Stephen. Eight days later, Stephen Utley fell into a coma and died from stage four cancer. I didn't find this out until about a month later, when his story was finally getting close to production and I hadn't received an updated bio from him yet. As usual, I just ended up googling his name to see if I could yank it from his website or somewhere, and there it was, right next to his name on Wikipedia, Stephen Utley, November 10th, 1948, to January 12th, 2013. Now, I never knew Steve, never had any other conversations with him aside from our brief back-and-forth emailing when we bought his story, but it really kind of slapped me numb finding his bio there on Wikipedia and seeing it finalized with a dash January 12th, 2013. It wasn't a life's too short and unpredictable so gather ye rosebuds and removing that USB device safely kind of numbness, although that's all true, but more of a wow. That guy was hilarious, and a master of the short story. But also, hilarious. I really don't want there to be no more of him. It's Wikipedia. Can't we just find consensus and edit that dash January 12th, 2013 away? This dude really belongs back at his writing desk. After stumbling across some of Utley's poems in a short collection called This Impatient Ape years ago, I've tracked down and read most of his work that I could find, just because he's always been one of those writers who's clicked with me. And the Drabblecast was his last professional sale. So on this week's show, a tribute to Stephen Utley, a savant of the strange story and a wellspring of the weird. An author that probably many of you out there have never heard of, but that I insist you hereforth remember. If you'd rather skip ahead straight to the fiction this week, remember the Drabblecast has chapters in it if you're subscribed to our M4A feed. We'll catch up with you in a bit. So who exactly was Stephen Utley? Here's a series of bios that he sent in to various publications throughout the years, from Asimov's to Analog. Stephen Utley is the adopted name of a writer who shaped the 22nd century more than any other. Upon awaking in a Tennessee whorehouse in 1973, alone and with no memory of any former existence, his skin etched head to toe in cryptographic tattoos, and his head leaking the memories of perhaps seven multidimensional civilizations, he began to write. Lone Star Stories, 2004. Stephen Utley's name is an anagram for Event Ye Lust. Mr. Utley is therefore a magnet to those readers pursuing lustful events. The initials SU are also reminiscent of Soviet Union, meaning he attracts communists. His secret plan is to expose the lustful and communists so he can help the government exile them to a research station six miles underneath Boise, Idaho. 
the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, 2005. Stephen Utley is a seminal author and poet published on three continents and possibly elsewhere, or maybe else when, who knows? What is not well known is that Stephen Utley can outright a woodchuck on a typewriter missing random keys, blindfolded, with his fingers covered in peanut butter, because Utley is a craftsman. He takes his time and does it right, while the common North American woodchuck is a total hack. Bewildering Stories, 2007. Summer, 1974. Stephen Utley wanders into a house in Elko, Nevada. Kept on to guard the chickens, he discovers a discarded pen and begins writing on the feathers of his wards. During a frenetic 19 months, he composes The Life and Loves of Gogol, Vermeer Dismissed, and Wanton Verbs. These bring him fame, tea, and meaningless sex. Hoping to increase the volume of the latter, he writes more wanton verbs. It flops. Retiring to an Illinois boarding house, he remains silent for 30 years, save for the occasional cluck. Asimov's 2008. It would seem that I'm not the only editor that had to Google Stephen Utley. From bewildering stories, in response to a request for personal data, Mr. Utley replied only that he is an internationally unknown author. The publishers have resorted to a simple name search on the internet to glean the following information. Mr. Utley was born on March 28, 1736, and is also a professional golfer, a former NFL pro lineman, a jazz musician, and a corporate executive. Married since 1894, Mr. Utley currently teaches middle schoolers. A slightly more accurate background might come from Utley's essay, Science Fiction and What It Means to Me, or something, which first appeared in Lightspeed magazine. Treblecast submissions editor Nathan Lee reads for us. Science Fiction and What It Means to Me, or something, by Stephen Utley. Ah, science fiction. How I doted on the stuff from exuberant boyhood into sullen post-adolescence, a span of time encompassing Captain Video and, again, dangerous visions. In somewhat less general terms, between the ages of about 10 and 28, I described an arc through Jules Verne, admittedly a tough go at age 10, H.G. Wells, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Ray Bradbury, Philip Jose Farmer, Harlan Ellison, Robert Silverberg, and Barry Maltzberg, ontogeny roughly recapitulating phylogeny. Early on, I belonged to that tribe of teenage readers whom Kurt Vonnegut described in his own essay about SF as being excited by, quote, the steady promise of futures which they, just as they were, could handle. In such futures they would be high-ranking non-coms, at the very least, just as they were, pimples, virginity, and everything. By and by, because, according to Saul Bellow's concise and elegant formula, a writer is a reader moved to emulate, and thinking it could do no harm, I tried my hand at producing science fiction works of my own. In October 1970, I attended a meeting of the Dallas Area Science Fiction Society and effectively met my future. The fledgling or aspiring writers Howard Waldrop, G.O.W. Proctor, Tom Remy, and Buddy Saunders, constituting more than half of the founding members of the Texas-based SF Writing Workshop, called the Turkey City Neo Pro Rodeo. Later, we were joined by Lisa Tuttle, Joe Pamelia, and Bruce Sterling. We were young, excitable, and very competitive, which pushed us to work hard at learning our craft. 
We were also friends, however, and collaborative efforts inevitably ensued. When I started writing SF professionally, the SF field was still a cozy place, with discernible boundaries adjoined by the watery body of fantasy literature and overlooked by its own Mount Rushmore, Robert A. Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, and gazing off in a slightly different direction, Ray Bradbury. John W. Campbell Jr. was the Pope, and half-dozen long-lived magazines regularly delivered the gospel. Everybody knew everybody else, what they had written, what they were writing, and what they would get paid for their work, pittances for the most part, and even with whom they were sleeping. It was a realm sufficiently inbred and insulated so that some of its more ardent citizens could say such things as, science fiction is the living literature, and hardly anybody would laugh at them. Relatively few people in the realm knew enough about literature, that is, the literary mainstream, which they dismissed out of hand, to understand that not only was SF not the be-all and end-all of literature, but that there was no such thing as a be-all and end-all in literature, not even Henry James. Xenophobic nativists patrolled SF's borders, ever vigilant against contamination by the New Yorker, academics, and other infidels. To a certain extent, their paranoia was justified. Kurt Vonnegut had noted in his essay that many critics outside the SF field mistook it for a urinal, while within the field, a subversive movement, sort of a reformation in progress called the New Wave, seemed to be gaining ground, threatening the very moral and intellectual foundation upon which all the steely-eyed, square-jawed, pulp-fictitious spacemen of yore had firmly planted their magnetic boots. Other controversies were as ridiculous in their way, can women write science fiction, as medieval disputes over the number of angels that could dance on the head of a pin. My original career as a science fiction writer was brief. Suffering from undiagnosed and untreated clinical depression, I finally decided that whatever was wrong with me, writing didn't help, so I stopped. And perhaps I did so just in time, as a counter-reformation gathered strength. My friend and occasional collaborator, Howard Waldrop, was warned by an editor at a major publishing firm against writing science fiction in the first person because it could lead to introspection. And some of the rejection notes I received from the editor of a leading magazine struck me as being almost as insulting. So I stopped and tried to get on with my life by pursuing interests that had nothing to do with SF. This meant that I also stopped reading SF when I stopped trying to write it. There was simply too much else in the way of reading matter which I had been ignoring while keeping up with the market, the excuse SF writers give for consuming lots of SF to the exclusion of so much else. As it turned out, not writing didn't help either, and after about a decade I started again. This time around, however, I didn't bother keeping up with the market. I would, I vowed, join no factions, subscribe to no credo, but go my own way wherever it should lead, and concentrate on writing the stories I wanted to write exactly as I wanted to write them, bringing to bear whatever I had learned from my reading in the interim, whatever I had been moved to emulate. Not keeping up with the market undoubtedly spared me much distraction and many headaches, because the market had changed significantly while I was otherwise engaged. The watery body of fantasy had burst its banks and swamped the landscape, isolating a bunch of semi-autonomous city-states that were barely on speaking terms with one another. When I reported this observation to Waldorf and Maltzburg, their reactions were identical. Where have you been? Well, I could only respond, away. Presumably, there are still controversies, and in all likelihood some very ridiculous ones, but they do not concern me. For if SF was ever a holy cause for me, it has long since ceased to be so. Undoubtedly, there is good work being done in the genre, there nearly always has been, but I just don't have the energy and interest required to go digging for it. I am content in my ignorance of who's hot and who's not. It is safe to say that anymore my interest in science fiction is barely even scientific, and mostly it is fictitious. And yet, 
And yet, on occasion, I find myself unable to settle down with a good murder mystery, possibly but not definitely my light reading matter of choice these past many years, and simply not up to headbutting my way through that next volume of Proust, and I reach instead for a Groff Conklin anthology, say, or, or Lee Brackett, or some tattered old issue of thrilling wonder stories, in the full knowledge that absolutely nothing else will satisfy my inner pimply virginal teenaged reader. Friend and colleague of Utley, author Lisa Tuttle, gives us more perspective on the man and his journey with writing in her introduction to Utley's anthology Beasts of Love. Treblecast managing editor and fellow Austin resident Nikki Drayden reads, I don't know if Stephen ever really gave up writing entirely. I'm always suspicious about such cold turkey claims. I left Texas towards the end of 1980 and didn't have much contact with Stephen for many years afterwards. But I think it's safe to say that whatever else he may have done to earn a living, Stephen has never taken up gun running or been even remotely involved in the slave trade. Going through his old files, reading some of the stories for the first time in nearly 30 years, Stephen wrote to me, The thing that keeps you going when you are a struggling young writer, besides, I mean, the rents being due and the cupboards being bare, is the belief, or at least the hope, that you are this far away from being brilliant. When you are a struggling middle-aged writer, you realize that you are this much farther away from being brilliant than you once imagined. Oh, not that far, Stephen. Not really all that far at all. Well, let's get to some of Utley's fiction, shall we? Although I guess technically this probably counts as fanfic. Austinite and Drebblecast editor-at-large Matthew Bay reads us a piece that first appeared in Pulp House Number 16 back in 1993, entitled Little Whalers by Louisa May Alcott and Herman Melville. Chapter 13, A Clash of Temperaments. Hall, cried Ahab, turning his blazing eye upon those of the oars as he took up his harpoon. All thou daughters of the devil, for this great Moby Dick himself, crusher of boats, chewer of men, I see thee, damned behemoth, O Hall, thou worthless things. Please, Captain, there are young ladies present, said Joe, with fire in her own eye. And I must ask you either to apologize or else to let us out of this boat at once. I do not feel well, Beth confessed, and Meg and Amy sat closer to her to rub her hands, pat her forehead, and provide the other sisterly comforts which mean so much. Poor Beth, Amy said. You have been weakened by grief ever since fever felled that poor tattoo gentleman. Yes, murmured Beth, and after I did so try to help him give up his funny little idols and pray that he might find his way to salvation. But perhaps I succeeded better than I know and will find him awaiting me in the heavenly throng which I feel I am soon to join. I'll see thee delivered down to Lucifer, if thou dost not haul, Ahab shouted from the bow. Oh, curse the day that I signed on, such as thee. As the white whale bore down upon the insubstantial boat, Ahab turned his back on the weary March sisters, causing spirited Joe to stamp her foot against the deck in an irrepressible fit of irritation. But Ahab did not see it, for he was taking aim with his veteran steel. Come, devil, he shrieked. Come, all-devouring, but unconquering leviathan. I face thee, I meet thee head to head. From hell I spit at thee, thus I strike thee. What a distressing man, Meg said, giving vent to a most un-Meg-like exasperation. For she was, by nature, a dear, patient, sweet-tempered girl who tried very hard to live up to the example which Mrs. March had set for her four daughters. 
I'm afraid this is all my fault, Joe confessed bleakly. For it was my idea that by taking some sort of work, we might help our mommy while our papa is away. Steve Utley wasn't all whales and woodchucks, though. The guy could write some pretty chilling and poignant stuff, too, as you're about to find out. For our feature story this week, we bring you The Country Doctor, which appeared in Asimov's also in 1993. Utley described this as one of his favorite stories, and we hope you enjoy it, too. So without more wanton verbs, we bring you The Country Doctor by Stephen Utley. Gardner was drowning, and strangers were laying hands on the bones of my forebears. I felt obligated to see that liberties weren't taken with my grandmother, my great-grandmother, and other good God-fearing ladies. So I put the business on autopilot and made the drive as if on autopilot myself. I viewed the visit as a family duty, not a sentimental journey. I hadn't been back to Gardner in 25 years. I'd always told myself that with my grandparents dead and their house taken over by obscure cousins removed, there was nothing to come back for. Soon there'd be nothing to come back to. The dam was completed. The waters were rising. Gardner was drowning. Once in the town, however, I couldn't simply drive to the cemetery. It wouldn't have taken two minutes. Wherever you were in a place the size of Gardner, you weren't far from anywhere else. And now, especially, everything was smaller and closer together than it had seemed when I was a kid. But I found that I had to drive down my grandparents' old streets, had to stop in front of what had been their house. I sat with the motor running and stared disconcertedly. Throughout my childhood, though I moved wherever the military took my father, my grandparents' house, a big, warm, clapboard pile, had remained the center of the world, the universe, home. My earliest memories were of being in that house, surrounded by relatives, loved, safe. Now it sat waiting for the water. My grandfather had been a carpenter, among other things. I could see his shed in back. There'd been a vegetable patch back there, too. My grandmother had shelled a lot of peas and snapped a lot of beans from it. The other houses on the block had once been features of a familiar landscape. Now, curtainless windows gave most of them a look of stupid surprise. One was carefully boarded up, as if the owners fully intended to return. The house next to it looked agape and miserable, paint hung from it in strips. The owners must have stopped bothering with upkeep when they heard about the dam. Finally, they just walked away. All but one of the lawns on the block were overgrown. A handful of people still remained, the die-hard element, determined to hold out until the water lapped over their doorsteps and to keep their yards looking nice in the meantime. It was three blocks to the cemetery, long blocks for someone dragging an orthopedic shoe. Nevertheless, I told myself, nevertheless. I turned off the motor, got out of the car, 
The sun was at zenith. There was no wind. A male chorus of cicada sang of love's delights to prospective mates. The day felt and sounded exactly like all the summer days I'd spent in Gardner in my childhood. I put my hands in my pockets and started walking, slowly, stunned by the force of the memories crowding in on me. I remembered how my grandmother used to sit in a metal porch chair and, as she put it, have herself a little talk with Jesus while she snapped those beans. Sometimes she sang gospel songs. She only ever sang the melodies, but I'd been to enough revival meetings to know the words to whatever she sang. Sometimes, hearing her, I'd stop my playing and sing the words while she hummed. My eyes began to sting. Gardner was drowning. Around the corner had lived Blanche, who was my grandmother's age, and whose relation to me was, then and now, unclear. Someone lived there still. A green station wagon with a dinged-up fender sat in the driveway, and there were curtains in the windows. But Blanche herself was long dead, killed in an automobile accident. I'd liked her a lot. One summer, she'd given me the empty coffee can in which I buried my grandmother's dead parakeet, Petey. I knew exactly where I'd scooped out Petey's grave and wondered what I might find if I were to open it now. Nothing, probably. At most, a few crumbling shards of coffee can rust. Tiny little bones dissolve in no time. On the next block was the crumbling brick shell of Cobb's Corner Market, where I'd sometimes spent my entire weekly stipend, 25 cents, on comic books and a Coke. Dime comic books and nickel soft drinks. It had been that long, and it was all about to pass forever from sight and memory. Drowning. More vehicles were parked by the cemetery than there were in the whole town. I saw many opened graves. It could have been the day after Resurrection Day. At least a dozen people wearing old clothes were working among the headstones. I knew in a very broad way what those archaeologists were supposed to be doing here, and I did see individuals sifting dirt through screens or duck-walking around exhumed coffins with tape measures in their hands, but what I mostly saw looked like just a lot of hot, dirty shovel work with nothing scientific about it. I came upon two youngish men at the end of the first row of graves. On the ground between them was a new coffin. Its lid was open, and I saw that it was empty. One of the men nodded a hello at me. How's it going? I said. Well, he said, it is going. I gestured vaguely around. These are all my relatives. They looked at me as if I'd caught them doing something naughty. Well, said the one who'd spoken before, we're taking real good care of everyone, mister. Riddle, the second man pointed away and said, most of the Riddle family's still located over on that side. Yeah, I said, I know. I did know. It was all coming back. I could have found the Riddles blindfolded, and the Riches, and the Bassets too. I'd seen both of my maternal grandfather's parents buried here, then his wife, finally his own self. 
The first riches and bassets had been laid to rest here in the 1850s. Riddles came along after the war, when a lot of ruined southerners were moving around and resettling. Relatively speaking, the concentration of riddles wasn't great. Riddles, it once was explained to me, tended to die young, and tended also to have wanderlust. My father had been orphaned when he was barely into his teens, and members of his line had come to rest in odd places throughout the South, the West, and as far away as the Coral Sea. The first graveside service I had attended in the Gardner Cemetery was for a young cousin of mine, Kermit, who one summer day had succumbed to the fascination of a fallen power line. The last one was for my grandfather. Is Dr. Taylor here? He's somewhere around here. He looked about and nodded off toward the south end of the cemetery. I think he's over that way. Thank you. The two men seemed glad to see me walk on. When I was a child, I'd sometimes been sent to spend the summer with my grandparents. My grandmother and great-grandmother had visited this cemetery often. Between them, they must have known seven out of every ten people buried here. They always brought flowers, and usually they brought me. They'd move among the graves, place the flowers, murmur secrets to the dead or prayers to Jesus, murmur genealogy to me, life histories, accounts of untimely, often horrific deaths. Most of their anecdotes were imbued with pain and tragedy. Sometimes I was interested and listened. Sometimes I was bored, drowsy from the heat, and listened instead to the cicada. The sound of those summers was one long insect song. Cicada and honeybees by day, crickets and mosquitoes by night, punctuated by gospel piano chords, hand-clapping times and voices singing, I'm gonna have a little talk with Jesus. I'm gonna tell him all about my trouble. It kept coming back, coming back. It came back as I passed Dr. Sweeney's headstone, which lay in the grass by the edge of the driveway. Nearby, a man wearing a faded plaid shirt was excavating the grave with a shovel. As headstones in this cemetery went, Dr. Sweeney's was pretty fancy, with some decorative cuts and a longer inscription than most. Dr. Chester Sweeney died June 30, 1900, erected in respectful memory by those he tended these 30 years. Dr. Sweeney was the only doctor, the only Sweeney, and the only non-relative buried in the cemetery. I'd been filled with dismay and disbelief the first time I saw his name on that stone. Until that moment, I'd thought that doctors were immune to sickness and exempt from death. Mama, I said to my great-grandmother, whom I'd been trailing past the rose, what kind of a doctor dies? Honey, she told me, doctors die just like everybody else. Everybody's got to die. That's why the important thing in life's to be baptized in Jesus' name, so you'll go to heaven when you die. But why, I demanded, do people have to die? She didn't answer, just looked at the stone, and after what was probably only seconds, but must have seemed like a whole minute or a full hour to an impatient child, she said, Old Doc Sweeney, 
I went to his funeral. I was just a girl then. I was nearly as young as you are now. She was in her sixties when she told me this. Naturally, I couldn't think of her as a girl or imagine that she'd ever been nearly as young as anybody. I remember because everybody in the whole valley came for it. And then's when I met your papa for the first time. He didn't want nothing to do with me then. But later, well, I changed his mind. But that day, everybody came to pay respects to old Doc Sweeney. Was he as old as you, Mama? Doc Sweeney was as old as Methuselah. Why, my mama, that was your great-great-grandma, Vanny Bassett, wasn't even born when he come here. My own daddy made the box to bury him in and drove it here in his wagon, and a man over in Dawson give this stone. Doc Sweeney was just as poor as everybody else and didn't have no money set aside. Seems like there never was so good a one as him again. He drove his buggy all over, day or night, rain or shine. Not like these doctors we got now. Poor as he was, too, he always had some candy and play pretties for us little ones in his pockets. I remember him visiting my mama when she was sick. And when he was leaving, he gave me a piece of peppermint candy and said, my child, my child. And I was a sassy thing then, just like you. Didn't have no more manners than a pig. Instead of thanking him for the candy, I just said, I ain't neither your child. And she laughed delightedly at the memory of her own devilishness. Thereafter, throughout the remaining summers of my childhood, Dr. Sweeney occupied a place in my mind as special as the one he occupied in the cemetery. I soon got over his being a dead doctor, but I remained impressed by his anomalous presence in what was effectively an outsized family plot. It suggested to me that he must have been, somehow, one of us. Even now he had the power to fascinate me. Gazing down at his stone, I found myself wondering exactly what he must have done besides giving candy and cheap toys to children to so endear himself. Mostly just be there, I guess, when folks needed a sympathetic ear and a few sugar pills. Doctors in Sweeney's day had done more nursing than actual doctoring. Much of the nursing was ineffectual, and most of the doctoring was downright savage. There was no food and drug administration to look over a physician's shoulder as he dosed people with God only knows what. Maybe this particular country doctor had won his neighbor's trust and respect simply by not killing inordinate numbers of patients. I tore myself away, moved on, and found Dr. Taylor and a woman squatting in the shade at the end of a row. He was strongly built, balding, with a sunburnt face. She was long, reddish-brown hair tied back in a ponytail, and was covered in freckles everywhere that I could see. A map of the graveyard lay on the ground between them, with numbers and other marks scribbled all over it. None of the graves at this end of the row had been opened yet. 
I noticed four narrow, squarish stones set into the ground at the feet of two graves identified by a common headstone as those of John Hellman Rich and Julia Ann Rich. Dr. Taylor, I said. Both of them looked up, and I could tell from his expression that he didn't recognize me. We had met only briefly, weeks before. Doug Riddle, I said. Mr. Riddle. He stood quickly, brushing dirt off his hands, started to offer to shake, pulled back suddenly. I don't know if you want to shake hands with me. I've been rooting around in graves all day. He seemed genuinely flustered. He turned to the woman who'd risen with him. Gertie, this is Doug Riddle, my associate, Gertrude Latham. I'm very pleased to meet you, she said. She seemed as ill at ease as him. Finding out what you came to find? Taylor made an attempt at a smile. In this line of work, you never know what you'll find out. Some people, I said, meaning mainly my irresponsible Uncle G.A., called this place Gardner Gardens. They looked uncertain at each other, as if unsure they'd heard me right. He ventured to say, Oh? The planting ground, I said, then shrugged. Small town black humor. Ah, oh, yes, Taylor smiled again, more feebly than before, and tried to make up the difference by adding a chuckle, with results that embarrassed everyone. My own smile began to hurt my mouth. Gertrude Latham went for a save. She nodded toward Julia Ann Rich's grave and said, that headstone tells us a great deal about this young woman's life. Do you know anything about her? I glanced at the dates on the stone. Julia Ann Rich had died age 22 before the turn of the century when my great-grandparents were children. I remember the name, I said, from when I used to come here as a kid. I thought Julia Ann was a nice name. I gave Latham an apologetic look for a girl's name, but I don't know anything about her in particular. Latham nodded at the grave again. Those are her babies there by her feet. Judging from the dates, she lost four of them in a row. The last one may have killed her. If this was archaeology, I wasn't impressed. I felt sure I could have deduced as much from the information on the stones. Yeah, there's more babies and mothers buried here than anything else. Lots of children's graves, too. Children used to die of everything. After World War II, though, hardly anyone except old people got buried here. All the young people went into the service or moved to Evansville to work in the P-47 factory, and they just never came back. The two archaeologists were staring at me. There was something like admiration in Taylor's expression. I felt a sheepish sort of pleasure and could not help smiling as he asked me, Are you Gardner's official historian? No, but there was a time when I must have known the name on every last one of these headstones. I got to be a whiz at subtraction from figuring out the dates of how old people were when they died. And in the 40s, people did start going away and not coming back. My father went into the service and stayed in.
And somebody in the family did go build P-47s, too. There was framed prints of the things hanging in a spare bedroom at my grandparents' house for years. Official prints with the Republic aircraft logo. Mr. Riddle, Taylor said. We could use your knowledge to interpret this site. I'd appreciate it if you'd consider letting us interview you sometime. You'd be what's known in anthropology as an informant, said Latham. Informant didn't have the ring to it that official historian did, but I was flattered all the same. There's little to compare with having people hang on everything you say. Anyway, I told myself, maybe Gardner was too small for a full-fledged historian. Nothing had ever happened here, nothing that mattered to anybody besides riddles, riches, and bassets, harvest time, tent meetings, weddings, funerals, somebody's barn being raised or burned down. No one famous had ever come from Gardner or to it, for that matter. And it struck me then with unexpected and shaming clarity that I'd never made the effort to bring my own children or grandchildren to this place, that I should have been murmuring genealogy and tragic personal histories to them all their young lives, teaching them about family and the continuity of life. I should have been telling them, every one of your ancestors lived and suffered and sometimes all but swam up waterfalls like salmon to make sure you'd be here today and the family would continue and the thread be unbroken. They were brave and wonderful people. And if you don't believe it, just look here at your great aunt, your great something Julia Ann, who lost four babies one right after another, which isn't even a record and it must have seemed to her like the worst thing in the world to lose the first one. But then she carried three more, suffered crushing loss every time, died a probably painful and possibly protracted death trying to deliver the last one. And Doug, my wife would have said by then, Dad, my daughter would have said by now, each with that same disapproving furrow between her eyes. I do get carried away at times. I blinked the thoughts away and looked at the two scientists. So, I said, what are you finding out? Latham said, we never really know what we've found until we've finished an excavation and uh, put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Is there a puzzle here? She essayed a smile. It was the best smile any of us had managed thus far. There's always a puzzle. And you always find a solution. Her smile got even better. This is what you'd call quick and dirty archaeology. We have to excavate by shovel, get as much information out as we can, as fast as we can, and move on. We don't have a lot of time. All we can do is figure out what the person was buried with and measure the bones. We try to look for evidence of disease that would show up in the skeletal material. Is there evidence of a lot of disease? Everything suddenly felt awkward again. I could tell by the look she gave Taylor that she regretted her last statement. I looked over my shoulder and saw Roy Rich's grave right where I'd left it decades before. Here's a puzzle for you, I said. What does this stone tell you about Roy Rich's life? Latham glanced at it. He died at age 15. He was lucky to live that long, I said. Or maybe not so lucky. I remember Roy. He was deformed, not differently abled, not even physically handicapped. Deformed. 
His sister Betty, too. I pointed to Betty's headstone next to his. She died at age 12. Those two had everything in the world wrong with them. I guess you'll see for yourself when you open the coffins. The two scientists were silent. It was very hot, and sweat gleamed on Taylor's pate and beaded on Latham's forehead and upper lip. I felt slimy inside my clothing. The cicada would not shut up. At last, Taylor said stiffly, We'll write a report when we finish the excavation. If you like, I'll send you a copy. I'm sure it'd be much too technical for me. Tell me something about my ancestors that I can go home and tell my wife. Taylor looked about as unhappy as a human being could get. Latham looked as if she were trying to wish somebody away. Me, of course. The more ill at ease they became, the pushier I felt. Maybe it was the gene for devilishness handed down from Mama. It doesn't necessarily have to be something nice, I said. If that's what's holding you back, nothing you can tell me can be any more horrible than some of the things Granny and Mama told me. I looked over the rows. A truck pulled away from beyond the gate, bearing some of the dead away to strange soil. Dr. Taylor, when we met last month, you said this ground's full of history, and this was a one-time only chance to get at it. Yes, he said, slowly, warily, I thought. Yes, I did say that. This is the last time I'll ever see this place, living or dead, everyone's being scattered. I know it's true I'll be able to visit my relatives' new graves over in Dawson, but they'll seem out of place over there. This is where my grandparents and great-grandparents were buried. This little spot in the road was their home. It was my home, too, for a while. Next year, it'll all be gone. The whole valley'll be underwater. It'll be like Gardner never existed. So please indulge me. I'm not going to gum up the works for you. I really don't want to be in your way or bother you a lot, but I need to carry away everything from here that I can this time. We try, Taylor said. We try very hard to be careful of the feelings of living relatives of the people we exhume. It's been my experience that relatives shouldn't, well, watch, and that despite what you say, they really don't want to know everything. Look, there's a few chicken thieves buried here. There's even supposed to be a horse thief, and one of my cousins stabbed her husband with a big sharp kitchen knife when he beat up on the kids. He isn't buried here, but the point is, I don't have many illusions about my family. I'll try not to be shocked by anything you tell me. He manifestly wasn't convinced. It's not illusions I'm talking about. I'm talking about more along the lines of... He couldn't look at me now, so he compelled me not to look at him by pointing down at the map of the cemetery. Grislier facts. Most people don't find it pleasant to contemplate, uh, physical abnormality. Pleasant or no, I almost said. I contemplated with every step. I could have gone on, mentioned my children's and grandchildren's congenital problems, too. I did say... I'm not squeamish, either. He gave me an okay, but I warned you look. <clears throat> There's evidence of 
pretty high incidences of birth defects, of bone disorders. Many of them are kind of gruesome and unusual. If he was expecting me to flinch, he was disappointed. If I was supposed to react strongly in any way, I failed. The only reaction I noticed in myself was some kind of inward shrug, meaning approximately, sure, of course, so what? In a community like Gardner, with no medical facilities and not even a resident doctor since Dr. Sweeney, there had been no avoiding the raw proof that flesh is weak, treacherous stuff. The maimed, the hideously diseased, and the genetic misfires had at all times been at least semi-present and semi-visible. I said, unusual how? He exhaled a soft, exasperated sound and said to Latham, Gertie, would you please take Mr. Riddle over to where Dan and Greg are working and show him? She almost managed to conceal her distress at finding herself appointed tour guide. Anger flashed in her blue eyes, but she answered, Sure, Bob. We walked past the rows. Up ahead, I could see two men kneeling beside an open grave. Dr. Taylor, I said, seems to think I'm made of glass. Please try to understand. Working in recent graveyards is about the least pleasant job there is in archaeology. It's very sensitive and very stressful, actually. One of the archaeologists kneeling by the grave was writing in a notebook. The other poked at the contents of a coffin, yellow bones, disintegrating remnants of a dress. They smiled when they saw Latham, went blank when they saw me. Introductions were made. The man with the notebook was Greg, the one doing the poking, Dan. They received the news that I was a relative without cheering. Latham looked down at the bones and said, Is this one? Yep, said Dan. Would you please show Mr. Riddle what you've got here? Both of the men regarded me doubtfully for a second, and then Dan said, Okay. Well, sir, do you know anything about human anatomy? Not much more than the foot bones connected to the ankle bone. I hadn't intended to call anyone's attention to my mismatched shoes, but Dan was the least stiff person I'd met so far. He just nodded and turned to the bones and began speaking very easily. It was refreshing. I won't make this technical, he said, and I'll skip the small stuff. The long bones in your hand... How long would you say they are? I glanced at the back of my hand. Three, four inches? Close enough. He directed my attention to the remains inside the coffin and pointed out an array of bones as long as cigars. These are the same bones, and they're the same fingers. As you can see, it's a pretty extraordinarily oversized hand. It was almost an understatement. Whoever the dead girl or woman was, I looked for the name, but glare on the stone obscured it. She must have looked as if she had an oar up her sleeve. Typically, Dan went on, congenital problems left the door open for all sorts of other problems. She must have been in pain her whole life. She was about 18 or 20 when she died. Most of the others have been much younger, there are really a lot of skeletons like this one? Yep. He watched me carefully now. Awful lot of them. Enough to make you wonder, 
said the other man, Greg. If the local drinking water isn't spiked with uranium dust or thalidomide or something... Latham shot him a thoroughly dismayed look. Greg cleared his throat and examined a page in his notebook very, very carefully. Actually, I said, my family's probably just dangerously inbred. Latham and the two men seemed not to know how to take that remark. I let them twist in the wind, stared down at the tormented bones, thought, Roy Rich, Betty. I had sometimes glimpsed them through the half-open doors of their back bedrooms when my grandmother visited their mother and hauled me along. My cousin Dorsey would nowadays be called learning disabled. Aunt Jean was movement impaired. Several of her lower vertebrae were fused together. Walking, standing, even sitting, all were torture for her. Once I eavesdropped fascinatedly on a morbid conversation about her back and hip and knee problems and strange calcium spurs the doctors didn't know what to make of. Once I was appointed to help her down the aisle at a revival meeting, at a pace glacial and excruciating even for me. The valley resounded with preaching on hot summer nights, and every household brought forth its lame, afflicted, dying and sent them forward to be healed by faith. Summer after summer, I saw the lines of pain deepen around my aunt's mouth. I saw the microcephalic and the acromegalic, saw the man whose body appeared to be collapsing telescope fashion, the man with the tumor that sat on the side of his neck like a second head, the woman with calves like some pachyderms, the girl, the girl who was one great, angry strawberry mark, saw it all and became inured to it. Faith never healed anyone, but no one ever lost faith. DNA had let us down, but Jesus would lift you up. I was jarred out of this reverie as Dr. Taylor strode up in a hurry. He had a frown on his face and appeared not to notice me. Gertie, he said. Rita's got something we better take a look at. He turned without waiting to see if she followed. She hurried after him, and after a moment's hesitation, I went lugging after her. Two men and a woman with her nose painted white stood over a warped coffin. One of the men held the lid like a surfboard. We looked down, and Latham said, My God! Lying in the coffin was the apparently preserved body of an elderly man in a dirty funeral suit. Lying in the grass by the edge of the driveway was Dr. Chester Sweeney's headstone. I heard a roaring in my head. The white-nosed woman, Rita, couldn't contain herself. She said, It's not a cadaver. Latham said, What do you mean? I'm saying this isn't a dead, embalmed body here. It's not a body at all. Rita pointed to the side of the elderly man's face. I peered and saw some sort of crease or seam under the jawline. It had come loose beneath one ear, and a flap of skin, if it was skin, was turned down there, exposing smooth white bone, if it was bone. Check it out, said Rita, and used her thumb to push up an eyelid and show us a startlingly realistic fake eye set in a grimy socket. 
Then she pinched the loose flap of skin between her thumb and forefinger and pulled. It came off easily, exposing a bony, tri-lobed bulb with openings that couldn't have been for eyes or any other familiar organ. Where the jaw ought to have been was a complicated prosthetic jaw, complete with upper and lower rows of teeth and a fake tongue. Nobody spoke for at least half a minute. Latham looked at Rita, then at Taylor, whose frown deepened when he saw me. I said, What? And then, Why did... Why would someone bury this? And couldn't think of a suitable noun. I had to settle for gesturing. Prosthetics, Rita said. The whole thing's goddamn prosthetics. Feel it. And first Taylor, then Latham, and finally I knelt beside the coffin. I touched the right cheek. It felt gritty, but I pulled my hand away quickly. Rita looked about wildly and said, Now what is that stuff? Latham said, It feels like... And stopped and shook her head perplexedly. Flesh-like, murmured Taylor, barely audibly. Rita nodded vehemently. So what kind of stuff is it, Bob? I don't know. Some plastic. I don't know. This grave was dug and filled in 1900, Rita said, and no one has touched it and opened it until today. I know because Gil and I opened it ourselves, and we'd have known if it had been disturbed. This thing was in the ground ever since it was put in the ground, back when nobody, nobody could make plastic like this. Rita, Latham said, just calm down and calm down. Gertie, nobody can make goddamn plastic like this now. Everybody was quiet again for a time. I looked around a circle of red, sweaty faces. Taylor said to Rita in a strangled voice, what's under the clothes? Rita carefully opened the coat and the shirt, exposing a dirty but otherwise normal-looking human torso. It was an old man's torso, flabby, loose-skinned, fish-belly white. Wiry hair grew in tufts around the nipples and furred the skin. Rita touched the belly gingerly, pinched up a fold, and wide-eyed peeled it right off like skin off a hard-boiled egg. The inner surface had many small fittings and trailed strands of wire as fine as spiderweb. Within the exposed cavity, where a ribcage ought to have been, was a structure like a curved piece of painted iron lawn furniture. Someone muttered, What in the hell? Maybe it was me, though I'm not a swearing man. Rita started to touch the structure, but her hand trembled, and she pulled it back. She looked around, gray-faced, and said, Too weird for me. Bob, just too goddamn weird. I'm sorry. Taylor touched the bulb carefully, then the chest structure. Doctor, I said, what are we looking at? Well, obviously some kind of art articulated skeleton, but is it some birth defect, bone disease, what? I was panting now, my heart was bursting out of my chest. 
Taylor worried his lower lip with his teeth. No disease in the world twists ribs into latticework. Whatever this thing is, it looks like it was supposed to grow this way. I don't even think it's bone. It almost feels like, I don't know, coral. Coral? Something. Jesus. Jesus Christ. And I pushed myself up. Latham looked after me and asked if I was all right. I barely heard her. The roaring in my head was louder now, and I staggered away, ran as only lame men run, disjointedly, agonizedly, until I found myself standing, shaking, before my grandparents' common headstone. I sat down on the ground between their graves to let my breathing slow and my heart stop racing, stared at the stone, tried to draw some comfort, some something from the inscription. Beloved in memory, Ralph Riddle, Mary Riddle. All I could think of, however, was furry, pale, plastic skin draped from Rita's fingers, the bony white bulb inside the headpiece, the false tongue in that false mouth. Are you all right, Mr. Riddle? I started. Gertrude Latham had followed me and was hovering concernedly. Just an anxiety attack? I punctuated the remark with a bark of mirthless laughter. I'll be back in a moment. She choked on a reply to that, so I said it for her. You think I shouldn't go back? She all but wrung her hands. If you people are playing practical jokes, we would never, ever play jokes. Somebody's up to something here. If this is some kind of stunt, you, Taylor, the Historical Commission, none of you will ever see the end of trouble. I can promise you that. What do you think we'd possibly gain from a stunt? She demanded hotly. Money? Publicity? I don't know. There's no money in archaeology, Mr. Riddle, she said, biting off her words. Certainly not in this kind of archaeology. You think we'd do this to get rich, to be on television? I was about to snap back, but then I saw that she really was angry, too. As angry as I was, maybe angrier. I got a hold on myself and said in as reasonable a voice as I could manage, What is that thing? It's not a joke. Well, it's something, and it doesn't belong. If it's not a joke and not a box full of junk and not human, and it sure isn't human or any animal, vegetable, mineral I've ever seen or heard about, I'm sure there's a logical explanation, she said obviously not convinced herself. We'll be able to find out more when we get the remains to the lab. Yeah? And how long will that take? We'll have to get all kinds of permission. It's going to be very complicated. Anything you could tell us about this Dr. Sweeney could be very important. Doc Sweeney, I said, and had to pause to clear my throat loudly. My voice was lined with wet sand. Doc Sweeney was the only doctor here for 30 years.
My great-grandmother was at his funeral. She told me once the whole valley showed up to pay last respects. I don't know any more than what she told me and what's on his stone. He came here after the war between the states. He died at the turn of the century. She didn't say anything for several seconds. Then, where did he come from? How would I know? Who knows if he ever said? All right, she said. Then why did he come here? Everybody's got to go somewhere. But why here? We're not talking about your standard issue 19th century country doctor. We're talking about... God, I, I don't know what we're talking about. A guy with plastic skin, lattice work for ribs, a skull like... She couldn't find the right word, if there was a right word, and the sentence hung unfinished in the air between us until I said, a skull like something and a face like nothing. Those bones back there are the bones of a, a Martian for all anybody knows. She was embarrassed to have said it, and I was embarrassed to have heard her say it. I couldn't look at her again for several seconds until I heard her suck in a breath like a sob and say, whatever he was, nobody caught on to him for 30 years. 30 years. What was he doing here all this time? Driving around the countryside in his buggy, dispensing solicitude, advice, placebos. No, what was he really doing? Gardner's small, isolated, even backward. I could only nod. The roads hadn't been paved until the 1920s. There hadn't been plumbing and electricity in all the homes until the 1950s. There's no money to be made here, she went on, and never has been. I nodded again. So why, she began, and hesitated. Maybe he was stranded. Maybe the place just suited him. She appeared to mull that over for a moment, then nodded. Who'd have bothered? Who'd have been able to check anybody's background in a place like this in 1870? Why else except that a doctor, someone claiming to be a doctor and willing to settle here, would have seemed like a godsend? He could have given them anything he wanted to give them and called it medicine. I heard the roaring in my head again. I thought of my grandmother breaking snap beans and humming. Are you washed in the blood, I murmured, or candy? What? The roaring in my head rose in pitch and blended into the incessant twirring of the cicada. I thought suddenly that I knew the words to that song. It was a song of the need to obey the biological imperative. Keep your genetic material in circulation, the chorus went, and I suddenly felt cold and feverish. I said, what if, and then on second thought knew I could never go on and say, 
What if Doc Sweeney had come to small, isolated, manageable gardener from God knew where and become one of its citizens in order to become one with its citizens and had been accepted by them through the flesh of their children, ever after twisting itself into knots, trying to reject the alien matter he somehow had bequeathed to them and whose children, those who survived, had gone out into the world to pass along that same alien stuff to their children in turn. And so I said no more, only lurched past Gertrude Latham, and if she called after me, I didn't hear. I wanted to be away from her and away from here, in my car, speeding away homeward with the radio turned way up and the wind roaring past me in the open window. The waters could not close over Gardner soon enough. I didn't stop moving until I was through the cemetery gate, and then only because I put my bad foot in a shallow hole hidden in the grass and went down on a knee. The stab of pain in my leg and hip was so intense, I believed for a moment I was going to black out. Gasping, I dug my fingers into the earth, gripped it desperately. Maybe I was going to be sick anyway. was our story. Hope you enjoyed. Are you washed in the blood or candy? They say that blood is thicker than water, but maple syrup is thicker than blood. So pancakes are more important than family. There, I said it. Read more Stephen Utley. Start with Ghost Seas, his last anthology of short stories. It's fantastic. You'll find a link to it in our show notes. If you enjoyed this story this week, share it freely with a friend. The Drabblecast is produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, and you're good to go. The story was brought to you by the generous support of, well, you. Well, some of you. The awesomest of you. We rely on your donations to pay authors for their work, or authors' estates and families, as is the case this week. Consider supporting the Drabblecast via the donation links off our webpage, drabblecast.org. Remember, we just opened up a new premium content podcast, Drabblecast B-Sides, for those who subscribe to Drabblecast for 10 bucks a month. Sign up for that and you get to watch me traipse through the Florida Everglades in a video podcast this month as Connor Chodesworth, catching weird-ass prehistoric toothed fish, purportedly being witty, and searching for the elusive Burmese python. Next month, we've got two awesome and exclusive bonus stories lined up for you, one of which is by author Robert Reed and is done with a full cast and has badass weird animals in it. Hit the 10 bucks a month subscription option and you'll get an email from us with login info to Drabblecast B-Sides. All right, moving on to our 100 character story winner this week. First time winner, Scarecrow, with this one here. We stood outside the news station in protest against miscommunication. 
I still don't think our message got through. 100 character stories, not counting spaces. Write one, post it in the TwitFix section of our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. You might get picked. Follow the Drabblecast on Twitter at the Drabblecast. All right, folks, that's our show this week. We're going to do things a little different this week and close out with a poem by Steve Utley called Taunting the Sea, which first appeared in Dark Moon Rising 2004. So stick around for that. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Rue Vandergrift. What a swell guy. Our program is brought to you this week by managing editor Nikki Drayden, submissions editor Nathan Lee, our art director Bo Kyer, with additional help from David Carvin, David Steffen, and Tom Baker. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you, there's no money in archaeology. Taunting the Sea by Stephen Utley I dropped through a hole in the fabric of space-time to stand on the shore of a primeval sea. The landscape's chief features were limestone and pond slime. The world I had come from was still waiting to be. Oh, waiting to be. Yes, waiting for me. The moon sped along the far rim of the ocean. Day pursued night, I watched the stars flee. It had something to do with celestial motion. If Kepler had seen it, he'd be dancing with glee. Dancing with me, yes, down by the sea. The sea clutched my toes, saying, Hey, don't I know you? That salt in your blood surely belongs to me. You premature monkey, their whole phyla to get through before something like you emerges from me, crawls up from the sea. Just you come here to me. I jumped back through time, straight home to tomorrow. But as I was going, I taunted the sea. Have fun with your mollusks, parting sweet sorrow. I'll check with you later in an eon or three. Eon or three, don't wait up for me. <laughs>